Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Raider Report podcast. This is episode six of this season. My name is Nick Benvenuto. I'm back hosting again this week. I just wanted to go ahead and take a second and thank Claire, who is also joining us again this week, um, for hosting last week while I was ill. Um, I feel like everything ran smoothly. It was amazing. So I just want to go ahead and give her a big shout out, round of applause. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much for being there for me when I was not feeling well and for the podcast and for the listeners as well. You're welcome. Um, we also have a new guest with us this week who is going to be working with the Guardian Media Group. Um, Jackson Cornwell is joining us. Jackson, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good, Nick. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Good to talk to you. Good to meet you. You too. Um, I look forward to working with you here in the future. Yeah. Um, so if you want to go ahead, do you want to go ahead and tell you know us a little bit about yourself? Go ahead and talk to the listeners a little bit um, about the things that you've been involved with here at Wright State in your time here and um, the things that you're going to be doing for the Guardian here in the future. Absolutely. So I am a senior political science major with a minor in international business with a focus on campaigns and elections. And that's what I'm going to be working on with the Guardian is our politics correspondent. Um, On campus, I have been involved with student government as the now former uh, senator for the College of Liberal Arts, also a president's ambassador, and the vice president of recruitment for the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. So political science major, have you, where does the passion for that stem from? Have you always been involved in, um, you know, student politics and stuff like that? Is this something that's always interested you? Yeah, it has. So I started in student government my freshman year as an intern, And that's also when I started with the Model United Nations team. And from there, those two merged. And I switched my major from English to political science going into my sophomore year. And the passion was born there. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Glad to have you here. I think that you're going to be able to, you know, provide a lot of really good insight um, for the people that, you know, view our content on The Guardian um, and for here on this podcast as well. So let's go ahead and get things kicked off. Um, I really want to spend some time today to talk about Um, the election that's getting ready to happen here. It's October 11th um, on the recording day of this podcast. So, you know, we're inching nearer, inching nearer and nearer to that November 3rd date um, where everything is going to be going down. So let's go ahead and dive into it. Um, One of the first things I wanted to talk about today was the format of the elections. This is a big topic of debate across the the YouTube and the podcast community that, you know, I pay a lot of attention to. It's also also all over social media. the format of the debates is something that I personally do not really understand. Um, it's something that has always kind of, you know, eluded me. I don't, I, I don't understand why we don't give um, the people that are, you know, running to be in charge of our country and to, into these elected positions um, more time to talk about, you know, serious issues and stuff. Have you guys ever, you know, when you're watching the debates, be like, wow, I wish I could hear more. It sounds like this is almost like a scripted answer that I'm getting rather than actually getting to hear, you know, you know what these people have to offer us. Anybody else agree? Disagree? I, I would say exactly. And like you said, they are scripted answers in most cases. 
You know, um, these um, candidates are trained hours and hours and hours and days and days and days before these debates. And mm-hmm. they, though they don't know the exact questions they're being asked, they have a general idea of what questions are going to be asked. So, you know, if someone's asking, let's say, you know, they're talking about immigration, they have the same lines written down that they're going to say almost every single time because they're going to align very closely with their campaigns running on and also make sure they don't slip up. So, um, I was not aware that some of those uh, answers were scripted, um, but I do know that certain candidates are very passionate about certain issues, and so I would think that those would come directly from the candidates. And uh, yes, I, I do wish that we had more time uh, for every candidate to express themselves and their opinion and give more detail, because really I think something that candidates run into is they get criticized for not spending ample time on a subject and saying, well, you didn't really answer the question, well, how much time was given? So it's it's a back and forth kind of thing there. Yeah, and candidates absolutely spend weeks, even months, practicing the perfect sentence for a debate. Um, Kamala Harris went on record saying that her and Pete Buttigieg, who played Mike Pence in her rehearsals, would just spend hours cranking out the the back and forth that they expected the two vice presidents to have during the debate. And that comes into the issue of debates and speeches are mathematical. There's a very much so formula to the statements you want to make. You have to have the proper fluctuation of logos, pathos, and ethos. You want to balance the the buildup to really grab the viewer by the emotions, but while still providing a logical answer. And mm-hmm. unfortunately with the debate platform, um, with the VP debate, as an example, they had nine topics over 90 minutes with 10 minutes each. There's no way that you can adequately cover the in-depth issues that were brought before the candidates at night in just 10 minutes. It's mm-hmm. impossible. I mean, these are such in-depth topics that mm-hmm. it's, assuming too much of the candidates for them to be able to provide a real answer with that time frame. And back with the lost it over. And back with the VP um, debate, I know that there was one time where Mike Pence was like, I want to finish my point, and the moderator had to say, No, we have to move on. So I think that's I agree with you, Jackson. Like there was there's definitely not ample time for them to, you know, go through nine topics in ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that, that's another thing. Well, go ahead, Jackson. Go ahead. I was going to say that um, debates follow Robert's Rules of Order, as do most uh, po- political issues. And once they have the back and forth, they also follow the Lincoln-Douglas Rules of Debate, usually one of the two. And they'll bounce back and forth. Of, you have two minutes to respond. You have two minutes to respond to the question. And then you have a minute to 30 seconds to respond to your um, opposition's response. So it is very much so. There's a structure for the sake of the debate. We're not going to deviate from that structure or else it'll descend into chaos as we saw with the first presidential debate. That sticking to that structure as quick and as short as it may be is the best way to get information forward. Mm -hmm. And I saw online almost immediately after the first presidential debate between President Donald Trump and Democrat Joe Biden, um, uh, the number one podcaster in the world, Joe Rogan, who I'm sure you guys have definitely heard of. If you haven't, go check him out. Powerful JRE. It's the number one podcast in the United States at the current moment. Um, He tweeted out that he would be interested in having 
a four-hour open-end conversation-style debate between the president and um, Joe Biden. And I thought that this was a really cool idea. Um, So I actually went ahead and when I was writing my article um, this past week, I spoke to Dr. Lee Hanna, as well as Dr. Sean Wilson, who are also, um, or both of those guys are um, uh, political science professors here at Wright State. And I asked them that question. I said, do you think that something like that could ever happen? Is that something that would ever actually come into fruition? Because right after Joe Rogan tweeted that out, you know, he obviously tagged President Donald Trump in there. um, And he had a couple other people who are, you know, very, very famous in the community, um, you know, retweet that and stuff. And they all were trying to get Donald Trump to say, hey, let's do this. Um, Trump actually agreed to it. Uh, the Biden campaign never, you know, really acknowledged it or anything. So it never actually ended up coming into fruition, but it was something that really got me thinking. I was like, wow, that would be so interesting. Instead of having, you know, the, the nine questions over 90 minutes, 10 minutes per question, whatever, having a four hour extended length conversation, so kind of like we're doing now, just a conversation between the two people, um, you know, with an unbiased moderator in between. And I just thought that that would be, I, I just think that that would be so much more informational um, and so much so much value could come for that for voters. What do you guys think about that? Do you think that it could ever happen in the future? Or do you think that this system is something that is going to stay in place, you know, forever? I think it really depends on who the candidates are and their styles and the conversation skill of every candidate. I think that um, it would possibly work in this case, but I'm not sure based on how the presidential debate would how the presidential debate worked, how a four-hour conversation between them would go. So I really think that it could work, but it depends if the candidates are amicable enough to have that kind of a chat at that length. Absolutely, Claire. I think that that would play a huge role in whether or not, you know, not only would they be able to be in the same room as each other, but whether or not that conversation would be productive at all as well. Jackson, what do you think about it? I think, like Claire said, it would definitely depend on who the candidates are moving forward. The unfortunate thing with the current system is that a lot of the research of understanding the candidates' platforms is up to the voter. Um, Every single one of these candidates on their website will have in-depth plans of their responses to the different issues, but then it's still up to the voter to go and track down those answers and read through the political jargon and comprehend what that says, because they don't make it easy to read usually. And so it very much is in the voters' hands to understand the candidates' issues. And I, it's not really practical for a lot of Americans right now, especially um, working class when you're already working four hours a week and now you're expected to go and research an entire political platform of a candidate when you just watched a 90-minute debate where they should have done that. Yeah, absolutely. Dylan, did you have anything that you wanted to add to it? Do you think it would work? Do you think it's something that could ever come to fruition? I think my opinion is very similar to Claire's. I think it depends on the candidates. I also do think it it would depend on the moderator. And I think the commission for presidential debates would have to be very picky about who they pick because um, my only argument against Joe Rogan in this sense would be that typically – um, moderators are very distinguished and long-term journalists who are used to asking questions and used to going and, you know, digging and getting more information out of them. So, you know, Absolutely. Um, that's, that would be my argument against that. Um, I'm not saying that the actual style would necessarily be bad. And I think, you know, 
it stayed the same since you know debates were started being streamed in the sixties. So mm-hmm. I, I again I I just think it depends. Yeah, and then there was another topic that I wanted to talk about as well. Um, the moderator for the debates that happened, the first presidential debate um, between Trump and Biden, um, I believe that he said uh, after the debate that um, you know he was given the option to, or they were looking into giving him the option to cut off microphones if you know one candidate was starting to speak over the other candidate, and then you had the whole debate of you know that's a lot of pressure to put on that moderator. Am I mm-hmm. going to cut this person off? Um, and now I have to try to you know stay it, keep it even between both sides because there was so much interruptions and stuff going on like that. Um, what did you guys, what did you guys think about the amount of erupt, inter- interruptions that were going on? Um, do you think that there's anything that the format of the debate could do or in the, in the committee that puts these debates on? Do you think that there's anything that they could actually do besides just cutting off microphones and cutting people out um, of what they're trying to say to keep people in order opposed to just interrupting each other, you know, every time they, every time that they try to talk. That's a big reason, I think, why the Trump camp didn't want to do the um, virtual option this next, this upcoming um, debate that's going to be happening this week, um, mm-hmm. because um, I know the president was concerned about, you know, microphone being able to be turned off easily mm-hmm. and, you know, not being able to convey his thoughts, you know, thoroughly because he was actually limited to the time where that he wouldn't be able to convey it in virtual format. I think that's be the same case if you know the moderator is able to move microphones. Also, you run the risk of if that moderator accidentally or not no, I mean yeah, accidentally um, turns off one candidate's microphone more than the other, it might seem biased. Yeah, for sure. Jackson or Claire, did you have anything that you wanted to add? I agree. I definitely think that although it would be beneficial, there is a lot of. Uh, room for and honestly probably temptation for bias if the moderator has an implicit bias against one of the candidates he or she might decide hey i'm going to turn off this candidate's microphone twice more than i do this other ones and so i think there's a lot of room for error although i do understand um the the pull of it the advantages of it um what i would say they can also do besides cutting off microphones is to have a timer sort of for the candidates because I think when, you know, the moderator says, oh, I'm sorry, you're out of time, the um, the candidates probably don't know how long they've been speaking. They'll probably just say, oh, I had more, I had more I was going to say, but if they could see the time, I think that might help them speed up their speech or make a more concise message. Yeah, the issue at hand is just the ability to follow the rules laid out ahead. As both um, Chris Wallace and Susan Page said at the start of their respective debates, that both parties came into the debate recognizing the rules, recognizing the time limits set forth by the commission. So it's, in theory, during debate practices, they should have refined their speeches already to fit within that time limit. Mm -hmm. Anything extending over is their lack of preparation for the debate. So I think that Susan Wallace, did, or Susan Page, excuse me, did a great job. Granted, she was working with a little bit better behaved candidates during the VP mm-hmm. debate, but she did a great job of holding both candidates accountable of, no, your time is up. Granted, Chris Wallace, he had a little bit harder, a bigger challenge to control than mm-hmm. the VPs, but 
it still is on the moderator to maintain decorum during the debate. That's why they're there, is to facilitate discussion, not to let the candidates run rampant. So I give major props to both of them for agreeing to do it and signing up, probably knowing well in advance what they were signing up for. But I do think that maybe muting, saying you have two minutes at two minutes and one second, your microphone is getting shut off and having that being agreed upon standard from the get-go would be beneficial. Now, sometimes it runs over. Like if someone says, you know, I've, there's a few times where I know Kamala at the VP debate went and ran over, you know, like three seconds over and the moderator was very lenient when it comes to that. But there was also a time where she also had to remind the vice president that, you know, your time is up and that your campaign agreed to these rules, which was reflective of the first presidential debate as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there was a lot. I mean, I, if I go back and I really think about it, when I when I watch those debates, the the disruptions, you know, the interruptions of um, the candidates, like when they were talking and stuff, it honestly just made it hard. It made it hard for me to watch because. I, it took away, not only did it take away from, you know, my learning about what each candidate was trying to talk about and their, you know, their stance and their campaign stance on, you know, on these different policies and these issues, but it just, it was almost like, it's almost like when you're having a conversation with, with somebody and then somebody comes up and interrupts you and then your mind just goes to somewhere else. And it's, it's hard to keep, it's hard to, to stay paying attention to the topics that are on hand because there's just so many interruptions. And I, it was just so hard for me to watch. I found myself getting a headache, you know, 10 minutes in, I'm like, oh my gosh. And that's another thing that it's a perfect segue for, for what I wanted to talk about now, which is, you know, the importance of this election. This is something that I, I keep hearing about almost on the daily is, you know, this, this year's election is the most important election in the modern era. And that's something else that I talked, you know, talked to these professors about um, here at Wright State. I said, you know, what is it about this election that that everybody is, you know, they keep saying this is the most important election. This is the most important election. So I'd like to get your guys' take on that. Um, when people say that this is the most important election of the modern era, what does that mean to you? Why do you think that is? Well, without getting political, I would say that people say this is the most important election because morals and values and what we think is important as Americans are all at stake. We have two very different uh, opinions, two very different people running, and the last election surprised a lot of people. The last election wasn't supposed to go the way it did, and so I think when people say that, it means that there is a lot of uh, a lot of our future at stake in the mm -hmm. country. I guess I would throw the question out, what makes 2020 so much more different than 2016? I would say there are a lot of issues at stake with this one that are a lot realer now than 2016. I think we're seeing an even greater political divide than we have in the history of our country, a staunch left versus right that has never that has always been there, but never so evident. Mm -hmm. We also have issues of a vacant Supreme Court seat currently, mm -hmm. issues of the environment, issues of civil rights. These are more prevalent than ever in our country right now. And they're being directly reflected in the course of who wins this election. Um, and they know, and I think the people know that. They know that who wins this election determines the fate of our country for many generations to come. And I can think of two just in the Supreme Court, you know, um, the ACA and Roe are coming up. And, 
you know, depending what side you're on, that can, that, you know, getting, re- replacing the Supreme Court justice or not is obviously going to be very important to you, depending on your political views. And the outcome of this election can very much well secure that. Jackson, related to what you said, um, this is such a uh, important election because people are so divided. But I have also heard, and I agree with, that the media plays a huge role and that bias plays a huge role in this election. And I think that um, it can be a blessing and a curse. I think that media can both uh, help us research our candidates and be loyal to them, but it can also further divide each other. And I, I did hear some of my older relatives and friends that they said, you know, we would just turn the news on and we would decide what we thought about it. And now the news tells you what to think. And I I thought that was a real interesting perspective. The um, big issue with that, and this is coming from a media studies major, um, is that um, you need to have a strong understanding of what media literacy is. You need to understand what is news and what is analysis. And when you're watching, you need to realize like, okay, this is obviously all opinion and I cannot base my bow off of that. And a lot of times you'll Absolutely. see that um, on commentary TV, such as you know Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, or three that come to mind immediately. But you're starting to see it in like the bigger three now, NBC, ABC, and CBS, where they put a lot of analysis. Now it's also on the news's responsibility that they are, they're also a business and they have to be able to attract viewers so if they have analysis that sways you know, to the left or to the right, they're going to get a lot more viewers, therefore buying advertisers. So a big thing that's very important is, you know, people like the Associated Press, who, you know, originally a large group of newspapers coming together it is, you know, that's seems like Reuters, stuff, something like that, which mostly are print publications or online publications. You're going to get a lot more um, factual um, news there, but also you're still going to see um, in Sometimes they're clearly, and sometimes they're not clearly labeled analysis or opinion. Okay, so it's less the news that's biased and more the viewpoint that's given. It, well, exactly. People, um, people watch in their news silos. I mean, you know, I'm if you know, it's the same thing as Facebook echo chambers. Almost, you know, you're going to surround those around you with the similar views that you have. So if I'm on Facebook and you know, you know, my grandmother has a different opinion than I I do, I'm not going to have her on my Facebook. You know, if I don't agree with the news channel I'm watching, I'm not going to watch that news channel. I'm going to go to the one that I agree with most. Um, you know, um, it, you've obviously, and also depending on your political view, you've heard it as you know, the Fox News effect or the CNN effect. You know, where you know news echo chambers are can be very, very dangerous um, on how people are educated in this election because they, you know, hear obviously analysis and things that are opinion and recognize it as fact. And it can be it can be extremely dangerous. Absolutely. And this goes back to something I said earlier with the candidates platform. It, it is up to the average American to fact check news sources and double check, mm-hmm. which is a lot of effort to make sure you have an accurate representation of the news, especially when there is something constantly always happening. You can go five minutes and have five breaking news stories, both in America and abroad. And so it can get very cumbersome to keep track of what's truth, what's commentary, what's just a flat out lie as we have seen a rise in fake news. Unfortunately, it it does come to down to the individual American to say, I'm going to take the time and effort to fact check what someone just said. I know um, 
USA Today during the VP debate, they were doing a live fact checker on their website to say, all right, Vice President Pence just said this. Here's how that stacks up, et cetera. So unfortunately, it is up to us as citizens to fact check our political leaders moving forward. And I also think that relates much with Nick's question earlier. Um, and and also back to like my point of how is this different between 2016 and 2020 is that in how we saw in 2020 or, or sorry, 2016 is that social media played an extreme role in the 2016 election. Um, and, Absolutely. And looking at it now, how quick can I get information? Breaking news comes out and I, I see it within seconds, you know, um, that's how quick information can get to me. And it can also turn elections on a dime. You know, it can change things, you know, October surprises, you know, this year, you know, people are saying it's the president receiving or getting COVID, which really, um, depending of, you know, the numbers coming back, it doesn't look good for him because, you know, now people are like, oh, you know, the virus is real. You know, the leader of the free world has now, you know, contracted, you know, the coronavirus. So, you know, I think it's, like I said earlier, and I agree with um, Jackson, what he said, but I, I think that the, you know, social media, especially is going to play an extreme role in all of this. Absolutely. And also to echo what Jackson said, you know, individual, um, you know, the average American voter um, taking the time and actually going out to research these candidates, um, you know, doing the fact checking, taking the time to make sure that you are voting the most responsible, you know, way that you possibly can. Um, this is something, you know, that I, I can also go back and say that I echoed that with, um, you know, Dr. Sean Wilson and Dr. Lee Hanna um, this week as I was writing my story. Um, you know, I was talking to them also about there's a there's a group of people um, on social medias that I've been seeing um, getting more and more notoriety. And then, you know, even in some of the people that I know in my personal life um, that are just like, you know what, I'm not voting. And I just yeah. I it kills me when people when I hear people say that, because um, That's dangerous. You know, That's to me, to me, that is. Yeah, absolutely. Claire, to me, it's just the wrong way to go about it. And I feel like there's people that see that as a protest, you know, a protest towards the system. Like, I don't agree with anything going on, so I'm just not even going to participate. Um, and I think that that can be so detrimental, um, you know, to the foundations that, you know, that we live on. Um, and I think that especially with our age group being in college, um, you'll see a lot of, you know, ad campaigns coming out directed right towards us. And there's a reason for that. Um, you know, our age group plays a huge role in determining these elections and the, the younger generations coming up and everything like that, that we, we play a huge role in this. So for a lot of people here at Wright State, this is going to be the first time that they ever have the opportunity to vote. You know, this election is going to be the first time. So I think it's huge for Wright State students, college students across, you know, the nation, no matter what happens, go out there and exercise your right to vote, no matter who you're going to vote for. I know I'm not going to sit on here and tell you who to vote for and, and all of that. That's not, that's not what we're here to do. But I just think, you know, taking that, taking the time to think critically and go out there and doing your research, you know, this is something that, you know, it's a right that's given to us as Americans. And I feel like we all should take advantage of it. Um, you know, no matter what happens, we're all in this together. Your vote is only worthless when you don't vote. I have heard many people say not voting is voting. You're voting that you don't care. That's true. Absolutely. Jackson, what would you say to, um, you know, the importance of 
the, the, the college vote. And, um, you know, the, the people at Wright State, like I said a, a few moments ago, the, you know, this is their first time that they're ever going to have the chance to vote. Um, do you have any encouraging words for, you know, first time voters and stuff like that? Absolutely. I mean, so 2016 was my first time voting, and I remember it distinctly because it was this adrenaline rush of, oh my gosh, I'm contributing to the future and fate of my country. And so there was definitely a level of pride with it. But especially for our generation, we are the biggest generation in the country, and we're only growing larger as more of our generation turns 18. And we are the most diverse in opinions amongst our age range. So truly, many political science are pinpointing that Generation Z is going to determine the outcome of this election. So by making sure you are out there voting, your vote does count. It counts both your local, state, and national elections. And I think it's just one of the most important things you can do as a citizen. And Nick, I do have to go. I have chapter meeting right now. Oh, you're good. You're good, Jackson. Thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you so much for joining us. You are absolutely free to go. All right. Thanks. I would just say, I would um, you know, reiterate again, go and vote. Um, you can't register anymore, but if you are registered, vote. Um, vote by mail, vote in person, vote early in person, um, but do it. You know, six million as of the other day have already voted early. That it was like a, mm -hmm. I forget how much of an increase, but um, it was, you know, like 900% increase, something like that, of how people, how people voted so far, something like that, um, early. So, I mean, but do it. Um, avoid the lines. If you're going to vote in person, wear a mask, um, be safe, but vote. Absolutely. Claire, did you have any closing statements? Like I said, not voting is a vote. So I think that we can take that uh, to mean that we should take action and uh, exercise our rights. And, uh, you know, so many people talk about our rights this and our rights that when it comes to different policies and politics. And I'm saying, I want to say that this is your biggest right that you can control. You have the right to vote. So go do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And the last thing that I really wanted to talk about um, was an experience that I had this past weekend. I got to go to my first um, drive-in concert of this year. So a lot of the, the listeners and of people of previous episodes will know that concerts are a big part of my life. Um, seeing live music, you know, being out there, that's just something that I love to do. And one of the things that um, the performer talked about this weekend um, that really hit home with me was, you know, we are all in this together. You know, that's one of the things that, that you can look at from a bipartisan point of view. We are all Americans. And the most important thing um, to remember at all times, no matter what happens, you know, with all of the divides and everything going on in this country, um, one of the most important things that you can do is just sit there and remind yourself to be an honest, hardworking American citizen, be, gen be generous and kind to the ones around you, the ones that you love, and just go out and exercise your right. You know, this is a very, very important time. Like we've talked about over the last 30 minutes, this is a very, very important election. So I just encourage all of you to stay safe, wear your masks, um, and go out and do, um, go out and do your due diligence and go out and cast your vote either way. Um, you know, it's huge. It's very important. So I wish you all a very happy week. Um, we'll be back next week for another episode of the Raider Report, hopefully having another special guest on. Thank you so much to Claire, Dylan, for being here. Jackson, thank you for being here when you were able to be here. Mm -hmm. um, thank you all for listening. And we will be back next week. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye.